0: That was actually probably the best parenting thing I could have ever done.
1: Welcome to another episode of What She Said. So this one has taken ages to get out. We actually spoke about a month ago. um, And I'm currently releasing episodes every other week. But where it fell, it was... um, the week that george floyd was murdered or the week after george floyd was murdered and the protests were happening all over the world and so i felt very strongly that i didn't want to take up space um and then life happened and i just was so busy because if you haven't seen on instagram i have officially launched um the new strand of my business and gone back to work which is podcast production and um Last night I was booking from, I was fully booked until August. Now I'm fully booked until September. But (laughs) anyway, if you do, if you're, if you need a podcast producer, then just go to the link in the show notes um, and you can have a look at my packages there. But yeah, so that's pretty exciting. Anyway, so on with this episode. I chatted with Lucy Aitken-Reed, who is also known as Lulastic Blog. She has a YouTube channel um, and a website, and she um, is a just dream guest. I love her. I fangled over her for quite a while, and... Um, she's come up with some of the concepts that have been a real game changer in my parenting, which one of them is sites of mutual fulfillment. Um, another is the kind of, uh, radical self-care as a parent, um, and putting yourself first. And that like these concepts, we talk about in the episode, along with lots of other things, we talk about um, privilege in in the unschooling movement and how we can kind of make those spaces more diverse and whether they're too elite. Anyway, I didn't script this intro, which is why it's so bloody rambly, but I'm just gonna go with it. (laughs) I hope you enjoy the episode. Obviously, like, share subscribe. All the usual stuff. Come and find me on Instagram. Go and find Lucy on Instagram and say hi and say thank you and that you loved the episode or not. (laughs) Thanks as ever to my Patreon supporters who basically make this happen with their amazing contributions, their brilliant pledges every month. Anyway, on with the episode.
0: I love the sound of your voice. You've got such a nice voice, Lucy. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) You should really get into this podcasting business. I
1: <laughs> oh. just wish someone would pay me for it. <laughs>
0: yeah, they should. They should. If anybody is ever looking for a really nice voice,
1: I'm going to point them your way. I'm sure I could make some money from some somebody's kink. You should start. You should start. <laughs> so I have been following you for not very long, actually, but when I discovered you, um, I was like, oh my goodness, how did I not know about Lucy? How did I not know about her? Because basically, I feel like you're super duper cool, South London living in New Zealand version of me. So for <laughs> anybody who doesn't know you, who are you? Uh, so
0: I actually do say super duper a lot. Oh my goodness. And you know what? I worry <laughs> that it makes me sound a little bit like Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm not Donald Trump though. <laughs> I think he's taken my style of speaking and I think it's really rude and I think he should stop (laughs) doing it so um yeah I'm Lucy (laughs) and uh I live in a super great year in New Zealand which is really super uh no come on Lucy be serious okay (laughs) Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm Lucy, I'm mother to Ramona and Juno, Ramona is nine and Juno seven. And uh, with my partner Tim, we live in Yurt in New Zealand, we've been in uh, on this farm for about five years, we bought it with another family. So we kind of do like a small, uh, intentional community thing. It's not quite a commune, but um, sometimes I call it that just to stir the pot a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm <laughs> really passionate about child rights. So I run courses and talk a lot about children and childhood and their rights. Uh, We live life without school. Um, I'm super passionate about that as well. It's probably one of the best and most radical decisions we've made. Um, Yeah, way above and beyond the kind of big one, which was moving from Camberwell, South London, to this kind of mountainous area in the middle of Old New Zealand. Yes, that's me.
1: So right now, there are a whole heap of people who are living without school um, and therefore homeschooling in quote unquote. So I'm really passionate about education and and how that kind of pertains to how I want to parent really. And I really, really don't want to send my kids to school. Um, So that's kind of how I discovered you through looking into unschooling. Um, And I know you don't necessarily, Mm. you don't call what you do unschooling as much as you do kind of life without school. But for the listeners, what is unschooling and what made you choose that over the kind of other types of alternative or mainstream education?
0: Well, I try not to call it unschooling, but unschooling as a term does have quite its own momentum. So I sort of swear off calling it unschooling for like, you know, a couple of days. And then I say life without school or whole life learning. And people look at me with raised eyebrows. And then I say unschooling, and then they only keep one eyebrow raised. And <laughs> um, yeah, so I do tend to say unschooling quite a lot as well, just so um, people have some sort of a reference point. But really, Um, I try not to use the word schooling that much at all because our life has just got nothing to do with school. We just exist in a school-free paradigm. Um, Yeah, so I tend to say that uh, this is curiosity-based learning. We really believe that that's how kids learn best is when they're really curious and self-motivated about a topic. In fact, uh, your ability to retain information if you're not personally interested in it is so low that to me it just strikes me as a bit of a waste of time to even try. Um, yeah, so it's kind of curiosity based learning, and also we just believe that our kids are learning all of the time; that they were born learning, and then you just don't stop learning, you know, until you pass on. Uh, yeah, as opposed to you know, learning beginning when you're five and under a teacher and then finishing when you kind of step out of the classroom. Yeah, so we, um, we first got into it. You know, I always thought we would be schooly people. I'm like a bit of a raving lefty and I always saw school as being a kind of common good, like, um, you know, the, the NHS or something. It was something that, good people get involved in in order for everybody to have access to you know a good education system or a good health system or whatever and then when I actually had children I everything was just called into question for me I was like I just want to do my very best by these people that have uh, joined my life and so I just sort of started researching and um, doing loads and loads of reading about all the different things. Um, I read a book called The Continuum Concept. That was maybe the first book where I thought, oh, hang on, the way that we try and teach our kids a random, arbitrary set of information and not loads of other stuff. And the way that we say this is learning and by nature, that is not learning, um, really uh, kind of just made me ask questions. And then we went We sold our our place in London, packed everything into a camper van. We went traveling around Europe and we ended up at a forest school in uh, the mountains of the Black Forest. It was pretty random. It's like a whole other tangential story. (laughs) But we ended (laughs) up in this place and I'd picked up from a charity shop a John Holt book. Uh, John Holt was pretty much like the father of this wave of natural learning. And I was reading a John Holt book called How Children Learn. And we were hanging out at this wild kindergarten, wild kindergarten in the Black Forest. And it was like this most amazing mystical alchemy just happened where I was reading this um, kind of theoretical Slightly academic book, but then seeing in practice all of these, um, three to six year olds just having this autonomous education experience where they were, um, learning how to cooperate, how they were just totally in charge of their own day and, and navigating conflict and doing all of this stuff, um, completely by themselves. Loads of things just clicked into my head at, at this one time and I just thought yeah this is what we're gonna do we're gonna live without school and we've been doing it ever since
1: that's amazing what (laughs) an incredible way to find unschooling I came to the kind of unschooling in a similar way or the concept of life without school in a similar way in terms of um, I, I absolutely never in a million years thought oh I would my kids won't go to mainstream education in fact I thought oh you know what life will be on hold a little bit until they're four and then they'll be at school and it'll be free childcare, and mm. everything will be fine yeah. but when I had my my eldest who's three um it brought up a lot of stuff for me and actually that kind of leads us on to very nicely the school wound because which is what I now recognize that as and I immediately thought no I there's n- absolutely no way that I'm going to kind of quell her curiosity and kill her creativity in the way that mine was for the sake of her going to school. And I'm very privileged. So, it, you know, I'm able, I'm very safe to be able to do that. Um, but there are lots of people who aren't, lots of marginalized folk who you know, this wouldn't necessarily be an option for them for various different reasons. And I wonder how much you feel it's also the responsibility of the collective to um, have some people in the school system.
0: So yeah, I definitely would um, like to take the opportunity to recognise my privilege and what I bring to this as well as an able-bodied, white, pretty middle-class, uh ceased female. Um yeah, so so there is definitely like a massive kind of privilege um to being able to step out of, yeah, essentially like free childcare and mass education. Um I also do feel that um we must leave space as well for all of the people who are marginalized and who are, uh, who don't experience privilege, who have still chosen to live without school, and are doing that um, without their privilege. And it's really, really hard for them, but they've chosen to do it. And they're um, living life with all of those challenges. And I fear if you, if it's only a conversation about, oh, yeah, you know, unschooling is only for the privileged, uh, you're massively writing out uh, writing or carving away from the story or um, not seeing all of the people who are have chosen to uh, live this way of life even though they don't have the same privilege do you know what I mean it's kind of a, a tricky yeah, one so I, re- I, I really want to sort of make space for all those people as well and and you know I know them and and we hang out together and and um, it's seriously real but if I was to say yep it's Mm. only for the privilege then I would be um not including them in in the whole story which feels like actually really unjust um so but should we should people still contribute to the school system well (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is a really complex one and it it kind of does deserve like a massive answer because um It it crosses into all sorts of things like um, can you shift an institution from the inside out? That's a question that has been asked of institutions for hundreds of years. And, you know, in the the 1800s, there were radical educators who were um, doing autonomous education experiments within mainstream education. And they were writing books about it. And they were saying, this is what we're doing. Um, You can trust children to learn. Uh, You don't have to force them or coerce them or manipulate them. And, you know, uh, writing about how successful it was Um, And that, you know, is like 140 years ago, they were writing these books and doing these experiments. And, you know, nothing really has changed. So um, I think that we perhaps put slightly too much faith in the possibility that you can change a massive institution from the inside. At the same time, I do know that teachers who... Refuse to to play that coercion game and the punishment game and and stuff and and they are really making a massive difference in the lives of children who are in school and and don't have anywhere else to be. Uh, a little bit of me feels like I'm I'm a massive optimist and uh, despite those radical educators doing their thing 140 years ago, I still believe that with enough people out here on the edge living life totally without school and calling out the toxic parts of the institution through you know talking about things like the school wound and and then having those teachers inside the system um you know easing the transition for people who are within it I feel like if you've got people in both of those spaces, we can actually shift things and make childhood a different experience for children of the future.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I completely agree. And actually, I want to circle back a little bit to, our, to how you very eloquently talked about privilege and making space for marginalized voices within, um, within unschooling or any kind of alternative education because um I part of the question that I uh, wanted to expand on I guess is what do those of us who have more power um need to do to make uh, unschooling spaces and and alternative education and just alternative parenting you know because there's loads of other like attachment parenting is considered kind of hippie in some in some circles in some parts of the world um so what do those of us who have more power choosing to live this way need to do or can we do to make our spaces more safe for marginalized people
0: Hmm. that's a really great question i think that um i have this phrase in my head that is going um normalize with empathy so um people who those of us who are kind of on the radical edge of educational parenting um you know really occupying it confidently and and really talking about it and using the um, voice that we have to really normalize this way of being with our children I think that's huge but I do think that it has to be done with empathy with this idea that um you know not everybody does have Access to it, and I also personally feel quite compelled to create um, places and groups and infrastructure around life without school in order to make it more practically accessible. So, um, for a couple of years, we've been working on um, a couple of different models of what we call a learning collective, and it's um, yeah group unschooling I guess so it's getting together one or two days a week and having uh, all pooling our financial resources so we can hire a facilitator to kind of hold this space for the children and be there if they need it Um, but mostly just like creating an environment where they can follow their own urges but then the parents getting to go off and do their own thing so it might be that you can then go off and, and earn for a couple of days a week, which you might not ordinarily get. So uh, part of me really feels that in this transition towards a more just uh, childhood and a more just education model is these little community-based learning collectives where parents are yeah, creating places that can be accessed by people who... Um, do need to go off and and can't rely on a partner or whatever and in our own um learning collective it's been cool like we've had um at any one time like a third of the the parents have been like solo mamas and and that kind of thing so it really does feel like um it's got a few legs it's hard work though so um it's really takes a lot of energy setting things up. But so I guess that's where I feel it's those of us with um, slightly more privilege who are kind of called, I guess, to, to put energy into creating those spaces.
1: You touched on something there, which I think is a parenting game changer. And you've got a really brilliant video about it. And that's the kind of sites of mutual fulfillment. That is such a parenting game changer, I think. I didn't realize until I discovered that, that you could... I don't know, not go to soft play if you didn't want to. Yeah. Could you talk to us a bit about yeah. Sites of Mutual Fulfillment, please?
0: Yeah. So same. site uh, once I kind of labeled what that thing was and wrote about it as Sites of Mutual Fulfillment, it was so liberating for me. It was exactly the same as you. I suddenly felt able to just be like, oh, that thing doesn't work for us and neither does that thing. I'm not going to go to either of those traditional parent child environments. I'm going to do this instead. Um there's something a eh, about naming something and giving it a kind of um term that that is somehow quite empowering. I think particularly in the kind of parenting space where I don't know but perhaps because it's often mothers um doing it uh, I don't know like I sort of a little bit of me feels like because we live within a patriarchy, if mothering was actually done by fathers, there would be terms for all of these things. And you could go <laughs> to a class on how to um, make a successful site of mutual fulfillment, and then you might even get a lemon <laughs> credit for it or something. And, um, you know, so I think it's kind of up to us to say, no, uh, quite formally, I'm heading off to a site of mutual fulfillment this afternoon. So I won't be joining you for your tea and tots time <laughs> where my kid just squishes <laughs> cake into the toys and you will stare at us uh yeah so um sites of mutual fulfillment they're, they're basically places where the parent and the child can have a really good time they're kind of yes places so places where you don't have to be like chasing your kid making sure they're not touching that or not doing that and I like to my ideal site of mutual fulfillment is one basically where I can take a novel and my kids can do something safe while I'm ignoring them. Um, Because I love spending time with my kids. I um, think they're absolutely brilliant. And I find being with them really fulfilling but um, I also love reading my book. And particularly when it comes to unschooling, I feel like when I'm reading my novel, I'm basically teaching them to read because I'm creating an environment of literacy, you know? So um, yeah. for me, it's all about the novel reading. <laughs> um, so for us, it, it's things like going to the beach is one where my kids can suddenly just enter this zone where they are totally free. and um, But that's because they're not kids that would run into the ocean so for somebody else uh the beach wouldn't be an smf because uh their kid would be too um you know eager to go swimming maybe out of their depth or something and um, and it's kind of cool thinking about sites of mutual fulfillment because everybody's one is different. So you said, you know, you don't have to get a soft play. Whereas for me, I kind of love soft play because I don't see my kids for like four hours. And, um, I just put uh, headphones on and listen to my favorite playlist and I read my novel or do a little bit of work. And as long as I can kind of avoid the smell of, um, you know, sort of cheesy balls, whatever that smell is, I shouldn't say cheesy balls. <laughs> God, Sorry.
1: <laughs> I was expecting cheesy feet.
0: <laughs> cheesy feet. Yes, that is what somebody else would say. Cheesy feet. <laughs> uh, you know, as long as I can smell that uh forget about that pungency. Uh I I actually count soft play as as my, one of my sites for mutual fulfillment.
1: So. <laughs> for me it's anywhere mine is actually the beach also, but um it's anywhere where I can um yeah I don't have to be chasing after my kids but also anywhere where I don't have to do small talk. Um so the park is just a nightmare for me. Mm-hmm. Park and the playground is a nightmare yeah. because I I just don't want to talk to other people really.
0: Yeah. And you can't read, um, a lot of my books are uh, on my Kindle app on my phone, and you feel very bad, don't you, looking at your phone when you have your kids at a playground, even though I'm like, come on, this is like perfect environment for me to be looking at my phone, whether it's a novel or Facebook while my kids are playing. And thinking about sites of mutual fulfillment can really help you uh, plan your day or your week um, in terms of energy and uh, making sure you've got enough energy to bring to like the tricky parts of your day. So if you don't think about, um, sites of mutual fulfillment, you might book in, yeah, uh, you know, toddler time at the local church and then uh, a play date with a friend. Um, and then you get home and you have to make Tea and your kid kind of needs you because they haven't had their cup filled. Whereas, if you think about your sites of mutual fulfillment, you can think, okay, uh, what friend are we going to hang out with? Because when I hang out with this person, I have the best time because she's like my absolute bestie. But the kids just bonk each other on the head for like an hour. So it's not really that fulfilling for either of us. So I'm going to see that bestie tomorrow. And that can be. you know, and then I'll figure out another site of mutual fulfillment tomorrow. But today, I need a really good site of mutual fulfillment so I can get back home and cook tea with enough energy um, to see it through. Does that make sense? It's sort of like, I don't know, it's like an energy calculator. It really does make sense.
1: It's so, um, I think as women, um, and I'm talking identifying women, not just cis women, we are taught from Pretty much from birth to put our needs last, and so when you get to being a mum, like you have to unpick all this learning and training to be to sacrifice yourself. So you, it's it's not natural to think, oh, I don't want to go to tots and toddlers because I don't want to do small talk and I don't really enjoy explaining that I don't believe in sharing and. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard. But once you do, it is liberating to legitimize your needs um, every every single day is so, so freeing. And I think that kind of comes down to that. So I wouldn't necessarily call myself, (laughs) it sounds really weird to say this, but I wouldn't ever call myself a respectful or peaceful parent. Although (laughs) I'm not a disrespectful or like rowdy parent. (laughs) But
0: <laughs> Love it. I am not a respectful parent. I am definitely not a peaceful parent. <laughs> you can take your respectful, peaceful parenting and shove it up your
1: cheese balls. I think it's because I feel intimidated by it. Um, because I feel that there's a level of perfection that I just can't reach. And whenever I've really mm. tried to be a respectful or peaceful parent or like follow all the... I'm really the sort of person that when I learn about something, I go all in, I like read all the books. And then I'm like, say to my husband, this is what we're doing now. We don't use this word anymore. We do, And (laughs) I burn out really quickly. (laughs) But the one kind of rule that I really, really always stick to is that rule of connection with your children Mm -hmm. and the rule of... I suppose it's a household rule of I need to find some bit of connection with with my toddler. That rule of us having time together to connect, and sometimes it looks like us watching RuPaul's Drag Race together. Mm. I'd love you to talk a little bit about connection and why that's so why it's such a game changer in parenting.
0: Oh, that's a great question. Yes, so connection, I would say, is really like the. Um, long-term version of the umbilical cord um, to your child um, being connected with you their parent is basically life to them and um, disconnection from you does feel like they're being cut off from a sort of life force or um, a real um, serious um, form of um, nutrients for their actual physical body it's like a really visceral thing for your children um you know we might just see it as a kind of potential extra to kind of human relationships that sense of being connected to someone but um for their child with their parent that connection is as meaningful as being fed their dinner kind of thing yeah so it's it's incredibly significant for your your child and I I really love that you um that you for yourself you found that really helpful to say I'm not gonna take on this label or follow this uh model of parenting. I'm just gonna try and um stay connected with my child. I think it's it's really beautiful. And um you know when you're doing life that way with your kids where you're saying actually connection is the most important thing, um you can then it's sort of like you've got a, um, a little barometer or something I guess that you can not barometer is not quite the right thing but maybe like a filter you can like insert this action and you can be like where is this gonna take me and my kid connection wise you know and you can sort of assess that parenting behavior by uh, whether it's gonna draw you closer to your child or not and you can say oh if I do it this way we're gonna get disconnected but if I do it this way uh, we could be connected so something like conflict can be really scary it can feel really scary for parents and we uh, maybe sometimes might avoid whole areas with our kids or avoid asserting a boundary because we're so afraid of conflict whereas if you look at it through a kind of connection lens you can feel Okay with conflict, you can feel like actually potentially, um, this boundary, um, can move us into deeper relationship because we can, um, express our feelings safely towards each other and we can learn about each other's needs and we can learn about each other's responses. And, um, yeah, I think that that can kind of free you up to then, um, yeah, take something like conflict and go, okay, we're gonna do this. Uh, conflict in a really healthy um connected kind of a way
1: I think that's a real misconception isn't it about um, a lot of the yeah radical more radical side of parenting is that it's permissive
0: yeah I mean I uh, have a lot to say about boundaries and uh, permissiveness <laughs> 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 because um, I actually really do think that we live in A culture that has sort of swung almost um you know this huge pendulum swing towards um this idea that all boundaries are good boundaries and it doesn't matter if you call it a boundary you can just do it it's all good there's sort of like no examining going on and um I think this has been since um maybe Brene Brown has been doing her amazing work. I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown, um, but she really um, loves boundaries to that extent where she's just like, if you've got a boundary, just assert it and stick to it and we're all good. Um, whereas actually a lot of the boundaries that we uh, sort of have an urge to put in place um, could often spring from our own real controlled childhood um, or they can spring from a kind of uh, fear um, because of something that might have happened in our life or something that we're really concerned about as a parent Um, or they can spring from this kind of um, adult supremacy that, no, as long as I think this should be a rule, uh, it should be a rule. And and so I really feel like uh, parents who are trying to do this kind of empathetic, connection-based parenting really feel like the invitation is to uh yeah hold boundaries in the palm of your hand um so that ones that don't serve you can kind of like slip through your fingers and the ones that serve you you can kind of have and and kind of hold dear to you and but I really do think that there needs to be a process where you go okay, is this a place where I need to assert a boundary? And then you really bring some consciousness into it and you go, where is this coming from? Have I done the unpacking of baggage around this? Um, And then once you've done that unpacking of the baggage, going, right, okay, it really feels like this is a place. I still need to assert a boundary. And then going, okay, how will this boundary serve me? And then once you've got this um, sense of how the boundary really is going to serve you and your relationship with your child, then you bring the boundary to your child. And you're like, uh, I've spent some time with this. And I really think we need to do this. I'd love to hear from you how we can transition towards this boundary, how we can make it a bit smoother for you. Um, and really bring your child into this kind of like transparent, Uh, way of asserting a boundary so that's a quite long-winded answer to your your kind of little prompt around permissive parenting I think that uh we can veer either towards permissive oh let it go anything can go or really controlling and that's usually because our brains have jumped into fight the kind of controlling or flight which is the permissive one, rather than staying in this regulated, really conscious place where you are examining the boundary, and then doing it in a in way that you that really aligns with your values as a parent.
1: Yeah, I definitely when I'm at my worst, I feel I swing, I'm like, bouncing from one end to the other. Um, and <laughs> in a very reactionary yeah. way, when I'm completely unregulated, for sure. And um, I wanted to talk about defiant kids because I have one (laughs) and I love her. Mm -hmm. She's, I love her for her defiance because I am the same. I was the same and I was definitely kind of restrained for my defiance and for my rebellious nature. And I believe you also have a defiant child and I'd love you to talk about that a little bit, please.
0: Oh yeah, I'm so grateful for my rebellious child. Um... Yeah, so she was our firstborn and pretty much, yeah, spent the first two and a half years of parenting looking around me and being like, wow, I must really suck at this whole parenting thing because my child does not want to do anything that I think is a good idea. And um, fortunately, we had another child and um, who was just a kind of like, generally compliant cooperative kind of kid and I'm so grateful to have had the experience of going oh right oh my goodness it's not that I'm a bad parent it's just that I've got a child who wants to do her own thing and it's not that all of those parents are really good parents it's just that their children don't have the spirit of my (laughs) one. so um I really feel sorry for the people who have it the other way around, and they have like a super cruisy kid, and they're like, "Man, I got this parenting thing down," and then they get, uh, yeah, zonked with a wild one. Um, so I'm, I'm super grateful because uh, she has taken me on this amazing learning journey of letting go and questioning. Um, all sorts of things, you know, there's there's a good chance that we wouldn't even be unschooling if I didn't have a child who so early on uh, made it super clear that she was her own person, she had her own will, her mind was her own. Um, and I had absolutely no right to try and manipulate um, or coerce her into doing anything. Yeah. So uh, there's there's a saying, hey, which is something like, I'm the worst for remembering sayings, but it's something like, uh, you know, the qualities that you, you like in an adult are ones that you really don't like in your own child. So mm-hmm. we really admire, you know, like people who ask questions of authority and people who stand up for their rights and the rights of others and who won't just say yes 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 to you know an evil totalitarian regime (laughs) you know we admire those people we give them flipping nobel peace prizes Uh, but when your children show that same spirit um it can be really triggering and and you can kind of it can activate your desire to um kind of control and and be the authority And I think the invitation there is is really for us to stand back and say, you know what, I'm going to give you as much room to bloom uh, so that you can really be one of these uh, people that will continue to resist and um, disobey and um, keep society moving towards um, justice and peace and
1: world change yeah yeah it's really bizarre how at school um for uh, like 15 years of our life we're told you only speak when there's an official time for you to speak and you can only ask certain questions you can't if you ask too many questions then you're disrupting um but then as soon as we go into the workplace traditional workplace um we're taught the absolute opposite. We're taught that you only get ahead if you ask for a pay rise. Women don't get paid because, as much as men because they don't stick their head above the parapet is sometimes a criticism leveled at women. Um, but we've been taught for years that, <laughs> that we're supposed to do the absolute opposite. It, I mean, it's just crazy to me.
0: It's so bizarre, isn't it?
1: So the school wound, let's talk about that because... Um, your blog post, which is very recent actually, was like a game, well, not even a game changer. It was more like, oh my goodness, get out of my brain. Yes, 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 yes. And I think I, I'm I already pretty self-aware in terms of my feelings around school. I've done a lot of work in therapy around it. And um, Sir Ken Robinson, his TED Talks, I talk about them all the time. That was probably, I watched That's it, good. I don't know, like six years ago, something like that it's very old um but yeah that was when I was like oh it wasn't me I'm not the I wasn't the problem it was the institution but yes please talk about the school wound
0: yeah so love um that Ken Robinson talk it's the best and it's so funny and you're just like (laughs) laughing and crying love it um yeah, so so the school wound, it was again just trying to um I guess formalise something that we don't really pay quite enough attention to, or or really actually it was calling out a toxic institution. Because I do think people, um, you know, on some level they're like, Oh yeah, that was a bit rubbish at school. Um, but there's not really a collective acknowledgement that there is a real toxicity to school as an institution um we're not recognizing it and and I think like I was looking at what prompted it was I I was I just did um a little post a few weeks ago about, uh, it was like a little picture of my first day at school. And then I just spoke about how I did a little bit of healing work, just healing the the kind of kid within me that spent so much time bunking off school when I was a teenager, because I'd always seen it as being um, just me being, you know, a bit of a dick, bit of a teenage dick, just being naughty and rebellious just for the sake of it. And then I was just, um, I was actually on my period at that time, like just downloading all of this insight. And it was like, you know what? Skipping school when I was a teenager was possibly the most healthy thing I could have done for my teenage self because school was such uh, an unhealthy place to be. And I went and looked up signs of a toxic relationship and school like fulfilled about um Four fifths of the signs of a toxic relationship for me, and so I kind of like wrote about it on Instagram, and then for like two solid weeks, I was just getting comments and messages from people telling me their own stories, and so I kind of started to look into a little bit and and discovered that yeah, it's really real. It's something like eighty five percent of people have um, experienced shame at school that has then impacted the rest of their life. And um, even in the research where where that statistic is is referenced, they just kind of say, um, you know, they they just center on the shame and they kind of center on that as opposed to centering on the root of the shame. And it's like it's not an accident that this shame happened at school. And if you were outside of school it wouldn't have happened it's not a natural part of our society kind of causing shame um on like causing people to feel shame and um and so I just really noticed the absolute absence of a kind of critique of an institution when we're telling these um shame-based stories about school and so yeah then I kind of fumbled around really looking for the the kind of image of of what that is and and really landed upon the school wound because I've been so impacted by the idea of the the mother wound which is yeah whole other thing that we should definitely talk about one time <laughs> um yeah and so so this post was really just calling out and um, the way that school um marks us as a collective how um that shame and that pain is not a natural way of um moving through the world as humans it's it's come from a place and that place has a name and that name is school and the scars that we carry are a school wound um yeah so so yeah again it's been I've been having heaps of messages from people just um really grateful I guess because we so internalize that shame we think oh I must be the only person that felt so impacted from my school days that I can't even pick up a paintbrush as an adult or um it's just my personal problem that um you know People who are in authority um, make me quake at the knee. That's just my own personal problem. It's like, um, I think now that we're talking about the school wound, people are realizing that it's not their problem. It's actually a toxic institution and they should never have been put in that position to have spent, you know, the majority of their early and formative years in such an unhealthy situation.
1: Yeah, Um the school, like the school system is, and I want to say that this isn't um, a criticism that we are leveling at teachers. Um, It's the institution, it's a capitalist institution, and it serves um, the few, not the many.
0: Absolutely, totally, totally.
1: So to round up a little bit, um, what's a question that you wish someone would ask you?
0: Like, I'm very, like, multi-passionate. Like, I love so many different things. Um, I love reading, and I just read and read and read so much stuff. Um, And so I basically want to talk about what I'm reading at this moment in time. Um, And that would change, like, you know, what day you would ask me. So at the moment, I'm reading, like, Elton John's memoirs. Um, but interestingly, that then took me down a rabbit hole of, like, um random other stuff about the 70s so then today I was like googling um you know why do people think Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles
1: Something like that, you know and like
0: um tell me more about their marriage and I was just like spent about half an hour of my day just like reading about Yoko Ono and John Lennon and was like really intense so I kind of want to talk about that right now so that's why you should not ask me that question about what question you want I want to ask my goodness but you know what, seriously, here is something because um, something I get asked all of the time is about the actual practicalities of selling up and buying land and living in a yurt and going off grid. You know, how do you do this bit and that bit? How big is your yurt? La la la. And um, on one hand, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Um, follow your dreams. It's really, really good to do that. And then on the other hand, I just want to say to everybody that, um, even if you move out of the city and live in the middle of nowhere in a tent, uh, you're still yourself. Like mm. you still take your brain to that new place and your heart to that new place. And, um, and I really feel like who I am today. Um, is a little bit to do with how connected I am to the earth now, I guess in comparison to how I was a few years ago It's definitely influenced by that, but um a huge part of who I am today is because um yeah i'm I'm really hearing that invitation to kind of heal and evolve and be courageous, and that's all stuff that I absolutely could have done while we were living in Wells Way in Camberwell. Do you know what I mean? It's like um, mm-hmm. my happiness doesn't actually come from opening the window and looking at the mountain. Um, really, I think like 90% of the, the wellness that I feel and, and um, the, the ability to make radical decisions um, is because of uh, these, this determination to, to keep
1: healing my husband and I, when lockdown first happened, we w- we didn't know what we were going to do in terms of financial stuff, because I was still on maternity leave, and he was potentially going to lose his job. Anyway, everything all worked out fine. But in the time that we've had off together, we were like, oh, we w- this we don't want to go back exact to our exact life as it was before, because we weren't satisfied with it. Because so my husband and I traveled for like, three years kind of long-term together before we came back to England and got married and had kids and it was amazing. It was just brilliant. But our automatic go-to if we're ever dissatisfied with life, even if it's in a temporary kind of with, you know, when you're sleep deprived and you're just going through a crappy winter and I don't know, your house has leaked. It's one of the, you know, one of those terrible couple of weeks. Our automatic go-to is, oh let's just sell our house and go traveling we can take the kids that's just what we do Mm -hmm. and for the first time ever I really recognized that that's what we were doing um because my husband was like right let's talk about our move to Bali how how do you think we should do it because you can work from anywhere and and I was like hey wait (laughs) let's just stop for a moment (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's going to make us happy
0: (laughs) yeah and it's it's like it's a really delicate one isn't it because I do think like if there is a dream on your heart like you know just slip and do it if you can like life is an adventure you know just um throw things up in the air and and do random stuff and listen to that thing that has been placed on your heart I sort of do feel that on one hand and then on the other hand it is just like yeah we have to be reminded that uh, wherever you go there you are that's the the name of a a book that kind of explores this a little bit and I just always remember we did that we when we yeah uh, left London we sold up and and went around Europe in this camper van doing all this I was it was basically like a road trip that my blog readers um planned for me (laughs) so (laughs) random and it was really fun because we ended up in all these random places um but I'll always remember um you know Juno was four months old and she was on my back and I'm in the camper van and I'm like trying to cook dinner and I'm hitting my head on the bunk and Ramona's like mad and Tim is like trying to entertain her and then I couldn't find the colander and I felt like maybe I'd left the colander on the side of a road somewhere and I had like a pot full of spaghetti that was going soft and I was like such a kind of minor uh predicament, but I just like totally lost it and I like threw the pan of spaghetti and I was like ah! <laughs> and it was like supreme rage it was like so stressful. And, um, it was like so unregulated and, um, there were just actually quite a lot of moments like that. And so we look back on the photos, me and Tim were like, oh, that was like really cool swimming at that waterfall. And then do you remember like how I, I lost my shizzle here and then you lost your shizzle there. (laughs) And and it's like the whole journey was like this, um, like vortex of like intense, wild, um, adventure and pleasure and intense usness dealing with our usness and <laughs> um or and stress and yeah fear and not really um being the kind of like uh, healed vessels of love that we could be you know
1: <laughs> the grass is always greener
0: it is but you're <laughs> you're you're the one eating the flipping grass man <laughs>
1: Um, <laughs> and what is the biggest myth about either you or uh, life without school, bust it?
0: Oh, that is a killer question.
1: Um,
0: <clears throat> Because I think people, uh, it's about parenting, they can focus a little bit, teensy-weensy, bit too much on parenting tools and um, acts of parenting and kind of leveling up maybe their parenting. My parenting game changed massively when I uh, magically came upon a book. You might... realize that I'm a huge bookworm. And basically, if I get gifted like a day to just do anything that I want to do, I will just be straight down the library. And I picked up one day this book by William Bloom, and it's called The Endorphin Effect. And it's not a parenting book at all. He's um, a professor from the London School of Economics. And it's all about the um, chemicals in your body that you release when you do certain things. And He basically his, his main thing is that we have been gifted the ability to be happy all of the time, but we are not accessing it. And um, one of the main things we can do is uh, let our endorphins roll so then I did like a three-month experiment I called it the endorphin experiment where I tried to follow all of his protocols for releasing endorphins um, and I still do heaps of them today but the main thing that it did was it put my feet firmly on this path of self-love and giving myself permission to release these kind of happy hormones and do things that make me feel good and do things that make me happy. And um, with that one kind of adjustment in what I was focusing on from, you know, just oh, being the best parent to just loving myself, that was actually probably the best parenting thing I could have ever done.
1: That is a big myth bust because I think a myth is your kids come first and actually you come you come first mm, i really do think that it's like such a cliche the
0: old oxygen mask you know yes. on the parent first so that you can then put the oxygen mask oxygen mask on the kid but it is so real it's so true and um but it's hard to do and, and there's privilege within the whole self love um thing as well, you know. So um again it's another one of those kind of delicate things, but um yeah super wanna invite your listeners to um move closer to towards loving themselves and accepting themselves. And sometimes that might even mean lying to yourself for a little bit of a transition period as you move into this place where you can actually accept yourself. You know, saying um you are I am worthy I um, am lovable might not feel true for a little while but the mind is really powerful in how it can um, make true
1: things that you tell it that's excellent advice and the very last question I wanted to ask you is what is your signature dish
0: oh my goodness I am so good at making soup and I'm so good at making curry so I'm like a winter person in the summer I don't know what to cook in fact this last summer I was just like I'm not doing any cooking and I didn't cook for like about six months because it was too hot and I didn't know what to make but we're entering winter now in New Zealand and every day I'm like soup we have two kinds of soup and curry (laughs) (laughs) I just yeah I'm really good at those things
1: what's your favorite soup because I hate soup.
0: Oh, do you? Oh my goodness!
1: I know. I wish I loved it, but I don't.
0: What about leek and potato? Come on!
1: I actually, you know what? I don't hate soup. I just hate the idea of soup. But if I have, if I'm served and I make really bad soup, if I'm served something yummy, and I definitely have had huh. yummy soups before, then yeah. I do enjoy them. But I just don't know how. I don't know how to make them anything more than just.
0: Okay, I'll give you the the secret. <laughs> the secret is um, it's like stock. It's got a French name, so I'm probably gonna sound like a bit of a dick saying it, but it's called oh bouillon. Yeah, bouillon. I call it (laughs) and it's um just like this organic veggie stock and it is the killer thing for soup (laughs) so I basically follow like um super basic soup recipes but then just pile in loads of bouillon and it's the thing that makes a difference and also secret ingredient for curry oh my gosh I can't believe I'm going public with this in fact no I can't
1: is it ketchup it's marmite
0: you pulled it out of me oh
1: marmite makes everything better <laughs> it does
0: it but if I'm like anything with lentils even I even put it in soup I just I'm just wherever I'm like what's missing from this I'm like garlic
1: and marmite it's umami isn't it yeah it totally is thanks yeah so it's actually quite chefy quite foody. I'm
0: so foody. <laughs> what can I say
1: um thank you so 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 much for your time I really appreciate it um I know it's freezing and you're in the winter in New Zealand and it's nighttime over there so I really appreciate it and um, where can everybody find you online um
0: so well firstly I love talking with you I could have talked for several more hours so much fun um so I'm I'm everywhere online it's embarrassing my Gosh. Uh, so I have um a new YouTube channel that is all about unschooling. It's called um Life Without School, and that's on YouTube. And then my main form really is probably uh Instagram and Facebook, and both of both of those are under Lulastic. Uh, and uh finally my blog and Also links to the books that I've written and old YouTube videos is also called Lulastic and it's lulastic.co.uk. Perfect.
1: Thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you, Lucy.